Our scripture reading today comes out of 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. That's 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Here ends the reading of God's word. We are continuing our Sunday morning teaching series today in the book of 2 Timothy. It's a book where Paul, an older, wiser father figure, is passing on what Timothy his younger son in the faith, what Timothy needs to know and hang on to if he's going to care well for God's people. And we saw last week that Timothy has a choice when it comes to the gospel and to those who are messengers of the gospel. He can either suffer for the gospel, suffer because of how the gospel challenges the larger society, how it challenges humanity's belief that we are autonomous from God, not dependent on him for anything in life. Timothy can either suffer for the gospel or he can be ashamed of it. He can hide his thoughts and beliefs from other people so that he doesn't suffer. And picking up from there in today's passage, Paul goes on to give an example of three people that you've probably never heard of. People who embody this choice, who are either ashamed of Paul because of the gospel or who are willing to suffer for it. People who make that choice, ashamed or unashamed, and then who act in ways that are consistent with that choice. They are either can act consistently with their shame or consistently with their willingness to suffer. Now, before we dive in, I want to think with you about what's going on here, because this passage takes up space in Scripture. It takes up our time on Sunday morning, and yet on the surface of it, it does not appear to add a whole lot to what Paul's been saying. Yes, it gives an example of the shame or suffering principle, but it uses people who only appear here in this book, nowhere else in scripture. And then it doesn't tell you very much about them. And so you have to wonder, why is this here? What am I supposed to learn from this that is essential for my own spiritual growth? See, God tells us in passages like 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So if it's the case that all scripture comes from God and that all scripture is useful for equipping us to live well, for doing good in God's eyes, then you have to ask, how does this passage about three obscure people who I've never heard of move God's agenda along? How does this passage add to what Paul's already said about us having to choose shame or suffering? And to answer that, you have to back up and think about the big picture. Because what Paul is saying here with these three men is a case study. It's an example that fits within a larger understanding of what it means on a daily basis to be the people of God, of what it means to be a part of his family and what it means for how we treat others 
who are in his family. And so to see how this passage fits inside that bigger picture, we're going to start this morning by asking first, what does it mean to be family? What's it mean to be part of God's family? And then second, what does family do for each other? So just two things for today. What's it mean to be part of God's family and what does family do for each other? Okay. First, notice that there's a contrast in the passage. In verse 15, Phygelus and Hermogenes have turned away from Paul, while Onesiphorus has not. And the reason he hasn't is because he's not ashamed of Paul's chains. And the implication is that those things go together, that you would either move away from Paul because you're ashamed, or you would move toward him because you're not ashamed. And the thing that determines if you're ashamed or unashamed is how you feel about the gospel. Paul is in prison because of the gospel. He's been proclaiming that humanity does not have the power to save itself, can't fix itself in the ways that it most needs to be fixed. Humanity does not have that power. But Paul proclaims that Jesus does. That Jesus has destroyed death and brought immortality to life, and that's a challenge to his society. It's a challenge to the powers that be. And so Paul is in prison because of his relationship to the gospel, and Onesiphorus is not ashamed to be identified with Paul, which tells you that he's not ashamed of the message of the gospel that Paul preaches. And that's what unites the two of them. They share a connection with each other based on their connection to this one gospel. Each one is connected to Jesus through the gospel, which then connects them to each other. And this gospel bond is stronger than all the other things that normally connect human beings to each other. See, they're not connected with each other because they share certain likes or dislikes, or because their life experiences and cultures are similar, or that their personalities and temperaments are compatible. They're connected instead by the gospel, which is responsible for why Onesiphorus does what he does. And so as much as he might share things in common with other people, or as much as he might like people in general, have good feelings toward people in general. That is not what drives him to reach out to Paul. He's not acting here under some generic humanitarian impulse, not laboring out of some blanket concern for humanity, not driven by the brotherhood of man or, or by ideals of the common good. Rather, his, his care is targeted. It's specific. He's doing everything he is for an individual, for Paul. And he's doing it because he and Paul have a relationship, a connection with each other. They come from different backgrounds, most likely different ethnicities. They have different life circumstances. And yet they have a connection with each other that transcends all of that. A connection that moves Anessa Forrest to make incredible sacrifices based on the gospel. Now here's where you need to step back and see the big picture of what it means to be part of the people of God based on the gospel. Because if you don't see this, then Anessa Forrest just comes off as a really nice guy who then has nothing to do with you. He's someone who's really compassionate 
but he's also someone that you can safely put in a box and say to yourself, well, that's just how he is. He served in Ephesus, verse 18. Now he's serving Paul. I guess he just, you know, likes that kind of thing. You see the danger? If you don't understand what God is doing in calling out a people for himself from the larger world, then you won't think that Anesiphorus is normal. You'll think he's special, which means you'll think he has nothing to do with you and that his life has nothing to say to yours. So to get a glimpse of the big picture, let's zoom out from Paul and Anesiphorus for a moment and ask, what does the gospel have to do with the people of God? One of the key themes running through scripture is that throughout history, God is setting aside a group of people for himself to have a special kind of relationship with them. A key theme of scripture is that he is calling out a group of people who are set apart from the rest of humanity, not to be at odds with the rest of humanity, but to be a source of blessing to everyone else. That group starts with Abraham and develops a clear identity as the people of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. But God never intended his people's defining characteristic to be their ethnicity. He began with Israel, but he did so so that from this group of people, he could bring the Messiah that he had promised everyone back in the Garden of Eden. A Messiah who would then bring people into this called out group from the rest of the nations through his work on the cross. And so while the gospel, that's the shorthand that we give to what Jesus did in his life, his death, and his resurrection, while the gospel reconciles you to God so that he no longer holds your sins against you, it does so much more than that. Because Jesus wasn't simply interested in paying off the sin debt that you owed to God. He had much bigger plans. Canceling your debt was a necessary step in those plans, but it was never an end in itself. Instead, Jesus's goal was that you could have a family relationship with God. His goal was so that his father would now become your father. And that's different from what we normally experience here on earth. In our world, if you owe a debt, then the credit agency comes after you until what? Until you pay it off. And then what? Then you never hear from them again. They leave you alone. And that's not what God does. It's not what he's like. Once your debt is paid, then nothing stands between you and him. And he then brings you close. He brings you closer than you ever were before. He adopts you, makes you part of his family. So that you become a child of God, a, a son or a daughter of God. It's not just that his wrath against you ends and then everyone goes their separate ways. It's that his love for you as his child begins. And it's that act of adopting you that immediately transforms all of your relationships, not only with him, but with every other human being as well. That act of adoption redefines who your family is now. 
so that your most important relationships are not based on your human parents who gave you birth. Most important relationships are not based on your ancestors, but your most important relationships are now based on a shared heavenly father who gave you spiritual life. And that new family that you've been brought into, adopted into, now alters your loyalties to other people. It impacts how you see humanity, how you see your place within humanity. It impacts your first loyalty so that that is now to God and to his family before it's to anyone else. And so kinship ties, ethnic ties, friendship ties, they all take a back seat. They're still important. But they take a back seat to this new family that he's brought you into. Jesus made this incredibly clear when he was on earth. He was teaching one time. Matthew chapter 12, verse 46, when someone told him that his mother and brothers were staying outside wanting to talk to him. Now, keep in mind the cultural context here. Jesus did not live in or speak out of a Western individualistic culture. He grew up and lived in a very traditional culture, one in which kinship ties were everything. It was those relationships that gave you your identity. Those relationships defined you, and they defined your obligations to everyone else. And your highest loyalty always went to your relatives. But when Jesus was told that his mother and brothers were outside wanting to claim his attention, he responded by pointing to his disciples. Text is very explicit here. He pointed to his disciples and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Here, the ones who follow me, those who do the will of my Father in heaven, these have priority over those who birthed me and who raised me. These ones are more family than those ones. Can you hear how incredibly offensive that would have been in that culture? He just said that your kinship ties, your ethnic ties, the people who are responsible for giving you life, do not define your highest loyalties. They don't have the highest say in your life about what you must and must not do. Instead, when God brings you into his family, he's the one who defines you and defines your highest loyalties. And it's his family who now becomes your family becomes your highest priority, your greatest joy, and your greatest responsibility. And that's a theme that runs throughout Scripture, that now within the larger sea of humanity, there is a smaller grouping of people who are united to each other in a new, very intimate relationship that you can describe as family, because God has united them to himself. And so this smaller group of people who don't look physically different from other people see themselves as different. They live and work in this world, but they do so with different goals, different values. They produce a different lifestyle that forms a different community of relationships. So they are more related to each other than they are to their own kinship networks. That's one of the first things that the prophet Balaam proclaims about the nation of Israel when he sees them. 
Now, Balaam was at best a, a sketchy character in the Old Testament. He was asked by the king of Moab to come and put a curse on Israel. Israel had come out of Egypt. They were headed to the land God had promised them. But there were so many of them that when they came to the land of Moab, the Moabites were afraid that they'd eat and drink everything in sight. So the king called this well-known prophet Balaam to come put a curse on them, and God would not let him. And so Balaam just kept blessing the Israelites. And one of the very first things he says about them in Numbers 23, 9, is that I see a people who live apart and do not consider themselves one of the nations. I see a people who live apart and do not consider themselves one of the nations. That's what it means to be a part of the people of God. To understand that you don't ever feel completely at home here on earth, that you live apart from the nations. That you don't completely fit into any nation or culture here because God has called you to be part of something completely different. It's a little bit like being a drop of water in the Gulf Stream as it flows through the Atlantic Ocean. The Gulf Stream is a current of water within the larger ocean that has its own characteristics as it moves through the rest of the ocean. You can think of it as a river of water that instead of running across land in a riverbed, is a river of water in the larger ocean that maintains its own channel as it flows through the rest of the ocean. It is water, just like the water around it, but it acts in a way that is separate from, distinct from, the surrounding water. It's very similar to what the people of God are like as we live surrounded by the rest of the human race. This way of thinking of the people of God stretches all the way back to when God first set Abraham apart. He promised in Genesis 12 that he would make Abraham into a great nation, a separate, distinct nation. That in its separateness was to bless the rest of the nations. That's what God has been doing in calling a people out of the world for himself. And that is the underlying reality between Paul and Onesiphorus. They are family, brothers in the same family of the same father because of the change brought about by the gospel. And the way you know that is that Onesiphorus is not ashamed of Paul, doesn't turn away from him like everyone else did. And by the way, just a real quick aside here. When Paul writes in verse 15 about all who are in Asia turning away from him, He's not thinking of the modern continent that we think about. Gospel hasn't made it that far yet. Instead, he's referring to a Roman province of that time. It's what we would now call the western part of Turkey. Ephesus was its capital. People in that part of the world had turned away from Paul. And Onesiphorus did not turn away from Paul during this crisis time in Paul's life. Others did. You can hear the sadness as Paul calls some of them out. He includes Phygelus and Hermogenes. We know nothing about these two, but apparently Timothy knew them. They must have identified with the family of God at some point, but they weren't doing so any longer. And Paul singles them out, kind of like he didn't expect it. Why is that? Because you don't do that to family. 
You don't do that to the family of God. You don't desert family, especially when the larger world is using its power against family. And yet, these two did. They didn't want anyone to associate themselves with Paul. Didn't want to be seen as sympathizers with him. Didn't want to be seen as his accomplices. And so rather than choosing to suffer for the gospel, rather than picking family over society, siding with Paul and facing the social powers that were coming down on him, rather than doing that, they turned away from Paul in shame. And that makes me wonder, who am I tempted to do that with? Who in God's family do I look at, maybe maybe just figuratively, and who do I look at and say, if it's even if it's just to myself, I'm embarrassed to be identified with them. I'm ashamed of them because of how the larger world sees them. And so I back away from identifying myself with them. Carl Truman, a professor out at Grove City College, wrote a really convicting piece in World Magazine earlier in January of this year. And he reflects there that what you see sorting itself out in American Protestantism looks an awful lot like a class war. Now, Truman is not theologically squishy. He is a solid evangelical. He believes that the only way to be reconciled to God is through Jesus Christ. And he sees that other solid evangelicals who believe the same thing are staking out different sides of the culture wars. He doesn't say that everyone is equally right in their positions on these cultural issues. But Truman is noticing a pattern that is at least as troubling to him as the various positions are. And that pattern is that there are people within the church who see those issues as more weighty, more substantial, than their mutual identification as members of God's one family. Those issues are more important to them than the fact they've been brought into the same family with each other by the gospel. Truman's noticing that Christians are basing their primary identity on their likes and dislikes, on their various positions on social issues, and not on what God has done bringing us into the same family. And Truman writes to challenge people who are more like himself, more of his own social class. He notes that he works with ideas, not with his hands, and he recognizes that that puts him into a certain social class. And it's one that often looks down on other classes. And he sees that that dismissive, prejudicial attitude that you find in the larger world is making its way into the Christian church. And making its way such that it's tempting for people to want to say to their larger unbelieving world, their unbelieving friends, something like, quote, we, we are Christians, but not like those ignorant, bigoted evangelicals over there. We are thoughtful and urbane, not ignorant and big, bigoted. It's a class thing. 
And the challenge this poses for me, Truman says, is who are truly my brother and my sister? When the line is finally drawn, on which side will I stand? With the people who belong to my class or the people who belong to my church? Because sometimes Christian fidelity requires one to be a traitor to one's own class. And he ends the piece almost with a prayer as he writes, may I say, yes, I am a Christian, just like those over there, unquote. What's he saying? He's saying that it's easy to forget that our primary identity as children of God is with other children of God, even more so than with our own social classes. And yet it's easy to lose our family loyalty, lose our family identification, because we've become much more loyal to, much more identified with people who fit into our socioeconomic status. We're more identified with people who read the things we read, go to the places we go to, enjoy the kinds of things we like, have similar tastes and lifestyles. We think we have more in common with them than we have with some of God's children. And what we need is to see other members of the family of God as family, as our family, as part of us, regardless of their politics or of who they vote for, regardless of their educational level, regardless of the way they say things that we find embarrassing because our unbelieving friends would find it embarrassing. Truman's urging, I'd say biblically, that we can't make the mistake of thinking that we have more in common with unbelievers than we do with brothers and sisters in God's family. We can't see our brothers and sisters primarily through the lens of our social and cultural differences with them, but that we have to put more emphasis on the fact that one gospel unites us into one family, one family that we did not choose for ourselves, but that God chose for us when he adopted us, when he brought us into his family. And that this underlying unity among us is going to outlast this life. It's going to outlast all the differences of this life. It's going to carry us into eternity. Phagellus and Hermogenes turned away from Paul when he was unpopular with the state, when he was out of step with the surrounding culture. Onesiphorus did not. You and I need his same way of valuing people. That those who are brothers and sisters in the Lord are family. And family is not ashamed of family, not ashamed to be known as family, even when there's a cost to doing so. That's point one, what it means to be part of God's family, which takes us then to point two, how family takes care of family. How do you know Anesiphorus is not ashamed of Paul or the gospel? It's because he acts he takes real clear, tangible steps that show his inner conviction that he and Paul are family. First, verse 16, he often refreshed Paul. One of the big differences between ancient and modern prisons is that people in first century jails were not cared for by the state. The government did not see it as their responsibility to provide for you. So if you were in prison, you were entirely at the mercy of your friends and family 
to bring you whatever you needed in order to survive. And that's what Onesiphorus took on himself to do, to provide food and other needs for Paul while he was in Rome. And he did this many times, not just once or twice, but he often refreshed Paul. Now, we don't know why Onesiphorus was in Rome. Was he there on business for himself? Was he sent by someone else? Did he come just to help Paul? We don't know. What we do know is that he left his household back in Ephesus, presumably because they're already taken care of. And he took on the added responsibility of caring for someone who could not care for himself. That's what family does for family. It spends resources on each other, sacrifices what it has for what someone else in the family needs. Now, you and I live in a very pragmatic society. We want to know what the bottom line is, what the cost to benefit ratio is, what the measurables are that would say to us that this is a good investment, a good use of money. And you realize that with Paul, there isn't any return on this investment. Remember, he expects to be executed. He's not getting out of prison. He's not going to be able to pay any of this back. In that sense, he is pure expense. The balance sheet says this is all cost. And sometimes that's exactly what it means to care for family. To provide for what our family needs without looking to get anything in return. It costs physical resources. Most of the time, family costs more than that. Family does cost money, but family also costs time and energy. Verse 17, when he, when Onesiphorus arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. Now, think about what that had to mean. Onesiphorus had to have heard that Paul was in prison. So somehow word got to him and he acted on what he heard, except he didn't live in Rome. He's from Ephesus. That's where Timothy knew him from. Now, how far away is that? Okay, there's this really cool online mapping software of the ancient world. It's free. Anyone can use it. It's called the Stanford Network Model of the Roman World. And with this software, you can plug in any two cities of the Roman world, and it will plot the various means, the the ways of getting from one place to another. And when you do that with Roman Ephesus, you learn that the fastest route would take you about 16 days and cover just under 1,200 miles. In other words, it takes a lot of time and money for Onesiphorus just to be in Rome. But even after he's there, and even if he's there on other business, he still has to invest time and energy in order to find Paul. How do you do that? There's no computerized lookup. There is no public knowledge of exactly where Paul is being held. And so you would have to do the hard work of face-to-face searching, of going to one government agency and asking for Paul, and then following the official's directions to get to the next official, to get to the next, having to publicly identify with Paul each time over and over and over until you finally found him. Anessa Farris invested a lot energy, time, money, reputation, because he and Paul are family. This is the physical expression 
of not being ashamed, the physical expression of knowing that you are related to others in the family of God. It means you move toward your brothers and sisters when they're in need to do what you can without looking for a return. So then you again, you, you pause and you, you ask yourself and say, who have you heard about? Who is there in your network of God's people that you've heard of who has a need? If nobody comes to mind, you have to ask why, because there's always a need among God's people. Who's the last brother or sister you heard of who had a need? Well, when you heard it, what kind of impact did it make when you heard it? Did you feel bad for them and then forget it? Or did you realize that you have some responsibility to meet that need since your family? If you felt that, did you do more than pray about it? Did you think about what you might do tangibly to help? Did this person show up in your calendar? Did they make a dent in your bank account? See, real love is inconvenient. It costs you. If it doesn't cost you in a very real way, it probably isn't love. That's what Fidelis and Hermogenes teach us. They did the math, ran the numbers, and realized that they're not going to get enough back for what it's going to cost them to be associated with Paul. So they turned away from him, didn't inconvenience themselves, didn't love him. And they missed out on something really special. Because none of us has everything that we need. None of us can fully supply everything that we need for ourselves. And that's by design. God plans that we need each other. He plans that we supply what each other needs so that we're interdependent in his family. And part of his plan is for us to so identify with each other that we make each other's needs our own. That we take responsibility for meeting those needs out of the resources that God gives. That's what Jesus meant in John 13, 35, when he said, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It's not our social media posts that convince people we follow Christ. Don't get me wrong here. It's fine to post on social media. But that is not going to convince anyone that Christ has changed you at your core. What does convince people? It's when you and I love people sacrificially that we have no obvious connection to, people in God's family, simply because they love Jesus and we love Jesus. When we sacrifice for someone simply because we're family, that's what then says to the outside world, this is real. What Jesus does in people's lives is real. He takes ordinary human beings and makes them into people who care about each other in extraordinary ways. Makes them into people who love in big-hearted ways that are just a, a small taste of how he loves. Even when these people don't get anything back. And if you're going to love like this, then you have to have the same thing that Anesophorus did. You have to have experienced this yourself. Step back from these couple of verses, and it's amazing how much Anesophorus does with Paul. That sounds like what God says he does with his people. For instance, you can think about the parable that Jesus told in Luke 15. 
It's about a shepherd who leaves behind 99 sheep who are doing well to go look for one who's not doing well, one who has strayed off by itself. And this shepherd does what? He searches diligently for the one lost sheep until what? Until he finds it. And the point of the parable is to tell you, here's what God is like. Here's what his heart is like for people who stray. He doesn't give up until he finds you. That's what rejoices his heart, finding those in trouble. And you realize that that is what Jesus did for Onesiphorus. Jesus searched for him when Onesiphorus was outside the family of God. When he was away from the rest of God's people, Jesus searched for him until he found him. Doesn't it just make sense then that Onesiphorus, as he grows up in God's family, would come to have the same family trait, the same commitment to seeking and finding his brother Paul that God has had with him? Or you can think about Psalm 23, a different picture about how God is our shepherd, now that we are part of his flock, that he leads his flock to green pastures, makes them lie down and rest there, that he leads them beside quiet waters, all of which the psalmist says, restores the psalmist's soul, refreshes his soul. That's a picture of how God treats Onesiphorus now that he is family, which is exactly what Paul says he experiences from Onesiphorus. God gives us these pictures to tell us what he's like as he shepherds us, as he cares for us, as he parents us as we're in his family so that we grow up to be just like him. So when you're tempted to think that Onesiphorus is unusual, that you could never do what he did or even want to do what he did, then you have to remember how he got to where he was, how he got to have the love and desire to care that he had. It wasn't because he was such a great guy but because he had a great God, the same God you have who treats you in exactly the same way. And so when you don't see yourself caring in these kinds of ways for God's family, then remember, remember that the same gospel that touched Onesiphorus is the same gospel that touches you. Remember that when Jesus was in the faraway country of heaven, that he heard you were in need. That he heard you were imprisoned by sin without any hope of freeing yourself. Remember that he left his household behind because they were doing well. To care about what you needed because you weren't. Remember that he crossed a much greater chasm than from Ephesus to Rome to get to you. A chasm that wasn't only measured in terms of distance from heaven to earth but one that's measured by the nature of his being, the infinite distance from divinity to humanity. Remember that he diligently sought you out until he found you, that he saw what you needed that would refresh and restore your soul, and he provided it, even though you could never pay him back. Remember that as he paid, as he hung on the cross, even though everyone turned away from him, Remember that his father did as well. Remember that he did it all so that, verse 18, you could find mercy from the Lord on that day when he returns with the holy angels to judge the world. Anessa Forrest knew all that personally. 
experienced that and then shaped him so that he lived like that with others. Lived with Paul the way that Jesus lived with him. Do you know what that's like? To be found? To know that you were imprisoned and needed to be found? I'm not asking, did you make a decision at a retreat one day? Raise your hand to follow Jesus. Pray to prayer. I'm, I'm not asking that. I'm asking, were you found? Have you experienced being found? Not asking what you did to find God, but have you experienced him finding you? Do you know what it's like to be helpless, unable to help yourself and have Jesus find you? Find you and refresh you often. If you know that, have experienced that, then just like Onesiphorus, it'll be normal for you to do the same with other believers, with family. To move toward Jesus' brothers and sisters like he's moved toward you. And if you haven't experienced this, then ask. Ask him to find you. Ask him to refresh you. Ask him to do that often. And he will. Because that's what brings him joy. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for inconveniencing yourself and finding me. Thank you for finding my brothers and sisters. Thank you for bringing us into your family. Thank you for continuing, Father, to parent us. Holy Spirit, for indwelling us to change us so that we become just like family, just like you, and that we treat each other with the same sacrificial love that you have loved us with. Lord, I pray that we would catch a greater glimpse of all that you've done for us and that that would shape us just like it has always shaped your people in the way that we live here on this earth, loving other people, caring about them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.